Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, so we, I, I just want to reiterate a few things we've got going on in our church. Again, you, you've heard it before. You're going to hear it again. We've got a Christmas party happening this week. And so, yeah, uh, Wednesday. So I want to encourage you all to come and bring people, invite people. It's a great opportunity to invite your neighbors, your friends. Uh, we will have plenty of food, fun. It's going to be a great time. The whole ugly sweater thing, you're welcome to join in on that. Um, or not, that's okay. If people are, you just want to watch everybody else uh, make fools of themselves, that's fun too. So, um, but I also, uh, you know, sometimes people at this time of the year, this is actually one of the most uh, I, I should say pivotal times where people join and enter into uh, gospel community. So people are more apt to come to church now than they actually are even around Easter. A lot of people don't realize that. And so uh, this Christmas party is a great time to invite people to join with us. But if they are not willing to do that or ready to do that, and it's kind of like, well, I don't really know, that's not really my thing, um, we are having a candlelight service. We're actually having two candlelight services on Christmas Eve this year. So Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, and so we're going to have our regularly scheduled services, but they are going to be candlelight services. So it's gonna be, we're going to be right here, um, but we are going to celebrate. If you are familiar with how we have done things in the past, we normally do a candlelight service in sort of the afternoon slash evening on Christmas Eve. We are going to do that on Christmas morning because it coincides with Sunday. And so that is the Lord's Day, and we're going to come together. We're going to celebrate Christmas Eve together on uh, Sunday morning, Christmas Eve. So um, that is a great opportunity, again, to invite people that are going, what am I going to do on Christmas? I feel like I, maybe I should do something, or maybe it's a, it's a great opportunity, uh, and I want to encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity to bring, invite people into gospel community so they can behold who Jesus actually is and what Christmas is actually about. So um, we've got a lot going on, and again, you know, the Weekender is another opportunity for us, the Weekender event. Um, who, who is familiar with The Weekender in here? Yeah, it's great. So uh, w w more information on that, but we are going to be doing that January 26th and 27th. So that is coming in hot. It is a way for you to learn who we are as a church, what our mission, vision, values are, what it looks like or even means to join uh, our church as your home church. Um, and so that's going to be a Friday and Saturday, the 26th and 27th. Um, you can register on the QR codes at your seats, and you can go ahead and even sign up for that. Uh, it's an exciting time, um, lots of exciting opportunities, but more on that as we go forward over the next few weeks. Uh, but this morning, we are continuing through our Advent series called God With Us. And so we're walking through the last portion of the book of Exodus. We've been in Exodus for the past few months, and now we're kind of in the second part of Exodus and we're calling this series God With Us, and it is an Advent series. And so the word Advent simply means appearing. And so it's a celebration of God's first appearing in Christ. As God became a man in the baby Jesus, and he grew up to be a man, and he died for our sins and raised from the grave. This is the gospel. And so this is a celebration of his first appearing and a looking forward to his second advent, or his second appearing when he returns. And so last week, we lit the candle of hope, and this week, we're lighting the candle 
of God's faithfulness. And so we like to, uh, a lot of people use the term faith, the candle of faith. Maybe if you guys are familiar with Advent candles, it's hope and then it's faith is the next one. But I really like the candle of God's faithfulness because the truth is our faith is ultimately ignited by his faithfulness to us, right? And so let's do a little call and response this morning. You guys ready? Let's do a little call and response. So this is maybe a new one for some of you, maybe not. If I say God is good, then you would say all the time. And all the time, I like it. Let's put a little uh, exclamation point behind it. God is good. And all the time, God is good. And all the time, exclamation point. That's right. <laughs> so, so this is the power of God's faithfulness. Do you believe that he is good all the time? Do you really believe that all the time? See, the thing is, is that in certain moments, we might believe that God is good, and we might even believe that God is good all the time, but we don't necessarily believe that God is good all the time. We believe that he is good, follow me, all the time, but we don't believe that all the time. So this is why I love this candle as signifying God's faithfulness. Because if your faith is based on your own faithfulness to God, guys, your faith is likely about to run out if it hasn't already. And sometimes we try to identify our faith by our lowest moments. And I'm here to tell you that God does not identify or label you by your lowest moments. He doesn't go there. He doesn't do that. He identifies you by what he declares and who you declare he declares you to be. And we need to remember that he is faithful to us and that faithful, his faithfulness to us, when we receive that, then you can reject his faithfulness and lean into your own lowness and shame. Or you can stand out of that and behold his goodness and glory and enter into and receive his faithfulness. Because his faithfulness to us is steadfast and unrelenting. And this is where our true faith comes from. And again, the real question is, do you believe that God is good all the time? Even when things don't turn out the way that you want them to, do you believe that he is good even when you're not good? Do you believe that he is good and has your good in mind? Do you believe that he is faithful and that he is trustworthy? So the rest of our time, we're going to pick up where we left off last week uh, in chapter 18. We're going to start with 19, but we're going to zoom way out. I mean, like 35,000 foot view on the book of Exodus and really the Bible as a whole. And we're going to uh, take a look at the next 13 chapters this morning. All right, here we go. So then we're going to hone in on chapters 32, 33, and 34. And we're going to land this plane in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, which we just read together during worship. And so... As we zoom out, what we're going to see is that his faithfulness is on display, that that's the theme that really sticks out here. So as a framework, for the rest of our time, we're going to look at three scenarios Israel experiences where God's faithfulness draws them out of their counterfeit identities and into their true identity in him. And in each scenario, we're going to see that it applies directly to us today. 
And so the first scenario we're going to look at is, number one, God's faithfulness in the waiting. Number two, God's faithfulness in the failure. And then number three, God's faithfulness even when we don't understand. So God's faithfulness in the waiting, God's faithfulness in the failure, and God's faithfulness even when we don't understand, even when you don't understand. Okay? So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this actually comes out of Psalm 130. And this is our, uh, our, uh, the main thing that I want you to get this morning. Wait on the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning because he is faithful and good. Wait on the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning because he is faithful and he is good. And when you think of a watchman, a lot of times we lose sight of this because we're like, okay, uh, you know, what does a watchman mean? Sometimes people, that even has, it carries a negative connotation. But the idea is that a watchman is looking for their hope on the horizon. It's a people that are hemmed in. They're on the wall. They're looking for their rescue on the horizon. They're looking because the night, when it's, it's like if you're assaulted, right? You ever seen Lord of the Rings? Right? You got all the, the like the, 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 the armies of darkness essentially are surrounding Helm's Deep, right? And they're, uh, they're looking and they remember Gandalf says, look to the east. And so there's this sense of waiting and watching and longing. There's a hope. And it's like, it, will he come? Is he going to be faithful? And that's his, the, the, the trusting in his faithfulness is what causes, if you've seen the movie, right? Aragorn to ride out. Despite all odds, why? He's going to meet him. And so there's this sense of expectation that builds. And so what we see in Psalm 130 and throughout the scriptures is this sense of looking, hoping, and there's actually a connection to stars here. In fact, it's a specific star that people would be looking for, especially the watchmen during the night. It's a long night. They're assaulted on every side. It's crazy. It's wild. But God is faithful. The morning will come. The sun will rise. And what is the signal that the sun will rise? It's the morning star. The morning star rises first. And when they see the star, it is a sure sign that the dawn is breaking. Jesus is called our morning star. This is the signal that we see. And so even in Christmas, when the wise men are looking to the skies and they see this star, that star symbolizes hope that the dawn is breaking. The sun will rise. There's a beauty in this that's just all over. But the reality is, is that in so many ways, we're still in the nighttime, that the dawn has broken, but it's still, we're in the in-between moment. And so this is the power of our hope in God's faithfulness, that he will come through. And so the vigilant expectation that my hope is, is to try, I want to cultivate this in you, that our hope is sure because he is faithful. And so quick recap of what we are seeing in the Bible, because I want to weave all of this together. That God promised a man, way back in Genesis, a man named Abraham, that he would make a nation through his offspring. And that nation would be a blessing to the entire world. And so the book of Genesis actually ends with Abraham's great-grandsons and their families moving 
from the land that God promised them down into Egypt to escape a famine. 400 years later, the night is pretty dark. Like the book of Exodus picks up the story and Abraham's offspring have multiplied, but they've become enslaved in a land that is not their own. And so for the past few months, we've watched as God has faithfully drawn his people out of slavery and into their new identity as his beloved people set apart for his holy purpose and for his glory. But they've been enslaved. The night has been really long and they're still trying to get the sleep out of their eyes in order to trust in the light. And so we've watched as Moses leads these people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. We've watched as God has faithfully delivered them from slavery, but now we're seeing that God still needs to deliver them from their own enslaved identities. And I quoted Tim Keller through this series because I love this quote. It grabs it so well. As Tim Keller put it, although it takes only a moment for God to get us out of slavery, it takes a lifetime to get slavery out of us. So that's what we're seeing God do with these Israelites, with his people, and he's still doing this with us even today. And so God's been faithfully drawing Israel out of their counterfeit identities and their self-centered slavery. It's enslaved to their own self-centered agendas because they think they're on their own. Their identity is truly, though, as beloved sons and daughters. And so we've watched as God shows them that they can, in fact, trust him, that he is trustworthy, and that he will provide and protect, even when the circumstances scream hopelessness and despair, even when the night is really dark. We've watched God turn bitter water sweet. We've watched him provide daily bread from heaven and the manna. We've watched him bring water from the rock. We've watched him fight for them and fight over them as a banner of hope in the midst of battle. And we've seen through the past few weeks how all of those things point directly to Jesus. And so all of this happens as they're following the Lord deeper into this wilderness. And now they've come to this mountain called Sinai. Israel is encamped before this mountain, and God calls Moses from the mountain. God is calling him from, God is up the mountain, and he calls from the mountain, it says, to Moses. And he says, uh, come and meet with me. And God tells Moses in Exodus 19, verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, speaking of all Israel, and keep my co covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses comes back down and he tells all of Israel uh, what God has said up on the mountain. And all the people then answer saying, quote, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And so then God invites Moses to come back up the mountain and God's presence then consumes the mountain in fire and cloud and thick darkness. That's the perspective that Israel has. They see all of this chaos and consumption happening. And they're like, Moses goes up there and it's like flashes of lightning and the sound of a loud trumpet. I mean, it is epic. And it would have been petrifying, especially to a people who, that like, the idea here is tremble. And so it was terrifying, and yet Moses enters in. He's, he's drawn up and in. It's like he can't resist it. 
And yet the people, they stand far away. They stand far off. And, and so there he receives these Ten Commandments, which Rich preached on a couple of weeks ago. And then for the next 10 chapters, we're given 52 more decrees that flesh out those original Ten Commandments. And they speak of how Israel is to live as a nation of priests, mediators between the holy God and fallen humanity. That's what a priest is, is a mediator between God and humanity. That's, what a pre- that's why I'm a pastor, not a priest, by the way. I am a priest, but not in, I, you are all priests if you are in Christ. Because you are all mediators between a fallen humanity and God himself. And so this is the power of the priesthood of all believers but I'm getting ahead of myself. This is what Moses is experiencing. He's getting all of these commandments and they're being fleshed out, these decrees and this description of who God is and how he wants his people to live. And, and, and this is this communion that he's having with God. But from the Israelites' perspective down the mountain, all they see is terror. But this, what he's receiving is just saturated with language about how to love God and how to love each other in righteousness and generosity. And then what we see is that God doesn't just desire to interact with his people from a distance. (laughs) He wants to come close. His desire is to dwell with his people. Even in their midst, he wants to be God with us. He wants to come down the mountain to his people, to dwell in their midst. And so, so much so that he gives these de- detailed instructions to Moses during this time up the mountain. And he, he asks him to build an ark and this tabernacle, which is like a system of tents and courts where the manifest presence of God could dwell even in the midst of Israel's camp. Right in their midst. And that's, man, that's a radical thought. That that fire, that lightning, that thunder, that petrifying God wants to be with you. Even in your midst. That's a radical thought for a sinful people. Like to to, to the sinful people, to them it's just fury and justice. And it's no less than what we deserve. It's why they shrink back from the mountain. He is and was petrifying to a people who deserve death and wrath. And yet, the Lord desires to be with them still. What? This is not, he doesn't want to just be distant and far away up on a mountain. He wants to be in their midst. There's this intentional tension on display here, and I want you to feel it. There's a deep tension that's on display and that's being provoked in Exodus and throughout the Bible between God's mercy and his justice. Both are very good. Both scream his glory. God is merciful, therefore he's glorious. God is just, therefore he's glorious. And so God's desire has always been to the reconciliation with his people. Ever since humanity rebelled in the Garden of Eden and sin creates the separation between us and God, God desires mercy because he loves you. 
He created you for this. He loves you and he loves mercy. It's all over the scriptures. It's all over the Old Testament. He desires to be with us and he desires us to be with him. And yet, he also desires justice. He is good and just. And justice is good. But he's also good and merciful. What do we do with this? How's this going to work? But God wants to restore Eden, even a better Eden, where we walk in the cool of the garden with our creator king. He wants to restore access even to his presence. He wants to remove all of that guilt and shame, but he can't just, because if he does just dismiss it, he's not just. There's a tension. But this is what heaven on earth is all about, guys. This is what you were created for. This is where all of our hope is actually grounded in and rooted in. This is the ultimate Christmas morning. Is when the ultimate gift comes to us. The sun has risen and he's with us. So, so, so what are we seeing here? This, this is God's next step in bringing about the redemption and restoration of all things. That's what's on display here in Exodus. He's chosen Israel to be his people through which this redemption and restoration happens. And so a major step in his redemptive plan are these sort of blueprints for this tabernacle, this place where God will dwell with his people. So this is the place of access to God's manifest presence on earth. And as we're going to see later, it's all laced with this imagery from the Garden of Eden because that's what it's all designed to restore. The tabernacle design is filled with like olive flowers and like all of these things that point directly to Eden. And so Moses then, he's back, back to the picture here. He's up on Mount Sinai. He's with the Lord. He's receiving all these beautiful decrees. And then again, meanwhile, down the mountain, the rest of Israel only sees thundercloud fury and wrath. And they get impatient. Moses has been gone for 40 days, which is actually a long time to an immature and self-centered people. Which brings us to chapter 32 and our first point, God's faithfulness in the waiting. Look at Exodus 32, verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods, lowercase g gods, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the, hand, the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, I want you to think about how crazy this is, right? Like, if you're thinking these people are completely nuts, you're not wrong, right? I mean, they've seen God exact his authority over the Egyptian lowercase g gods, and he's shown himself to be extremely faithful. They just agreed, they just agreed to the Ten Commandments, which literally began with the first and second commandment is, one, you shall have no other gods before me, lowercase g gods. That doesn't just mean that he wants to be the priority. It means I don't want them anywhere in my presence. Don't bring them before me. 
That's one. And they're like, yes, done. And then number two, you shall make no idols, which is essentially anything that you want more than you want God. Like the security that comes from money. That's a big idol, especially in our society and culture, right? And we, sometimes we try to like di- differentiate between having no gods before the Lord and also making no idols as if they're two separate things. But the reality is, is that it all flows, the Ten Commandments flow out of one another. And so what we see in an idol is that we're making a God and we're worshiping something and we're bringing it before him. That's what they're doing here. In fact, like lean into this because this is crazy. Like Moses, he's been gone for a month now, right? Like barely, maybe a little more, but, but clearly these people can't be expected to follow the Lord without him there, right? I mean, like, if your parents aren't around and you're not at church or around church people or the pastor, it doesn't really matter what you do, right? Because, I mean, you know. That's why I think it's so funny when people cuss around me. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm not God. Like, <laughs> anyway. But when these things happen, all of it's just a symptom of what's really going on in your heart. And God's after what's in your heart. And these Israelites are clearly still very much enslaved to their old ways. And so they now assume that they're on their own, which is the default for insecure people, right? Well, I just gotta do it by myself, right? So they drop back into this self-protection mode. And look what happens, verse two. So Aaron, which is Moses' brother, he said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, or, sorry, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, lowercase g, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What? 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 Like, who brought you up out of Egypt? Like, these lowercase g gods? No. That's who the Lord, uppercase g, God, that's who he saved you from. In fact, remember, one of the plagues was actually on cattle. And this bull god called Apis was actually a prominent god of prosperity and self-sufficient success and being externally impressive to the world around you. That's what that bull, remember the the man with the bull head? Like, that's what Apis, that's that's what he represented. And so what do we see here? One month without guidance and the people that God has been so faithful in showing that they can, they can and must rely on him for their provision and protection, they now drop back and they rely upon their gold and they fashion it into a God and set it right before the Lord in worship. And remember where they got that gold from in the first place. Think about this because it applies directly to us. The Egyptians gave it to them because of the Lord. It was like a ransom given so the plagues would stop. In other words, even the gold they worshipped actually came from the Lord. Does it sound familiar? Guys, that, that, that'll preach by itself, but, you know, that, that's like a whole sermon right there. Your, your, your silver and gold is not where your security comes from. The Lord is. 
And some of y'all need to hear that this Christmas season. We need to be reminded of this. Yes, be thankful for what you have, but more than that, be thankful for the one who provides it. And if you're struggling this year and you're, you're, you're like, man, I, I don't feel like I have all that I need and that you're, you're not providing for me in the way that I want, I want you to remember that in him you have all that you need in abundance. He is the provider. And there's something in that for you to lean into. And there's something, there's some gold in that. Amen? Because he's what it's all about anyway. To be patient that he is faithful and he is good. The question is, again, do you believe that? So many people turn away from the Lord and towards sin because they get impatient on the Lord's timing. All the while, God's simply saying, trust me, I haven't abandoned you. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. This is a psalm of David. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For, the, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Not in those other things that we would turn to the left and the right towards because we're impatient in his timing. But in him, wait for him. In him is that steadfast love. In him is that plentiful redemption. In him is our living hope. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Back to verse five, Exodus 32. And so when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Okay, so he sees this golden calf. And then they're like, these are our gods, which is interesting. And Aaron then makes a proclamation and says, quote, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early in the next day and offered uh, burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, don't miss this. I want you to see this. Aaron, who's Moses' brother, tries to mingle worship of the Lord with worship of this idol. As if they coincide or they can coincide. He mingles them together. It's very, very demonically deceptive. It's why he refers to the calf saying, or they refer to this calf saying, these are the gods that took you up out of. They're not dismissing necessarily in their mind the Lord, but they're actually blaspheming him by lowering him to the level of these lowercase g gods that they were just delivered from. He's like, well, the people are going to worship their gold, so I might as well try to slap a Christian sticker on there so that they don't forget about God altogether. But all he's really done is profane the character and the holiness of God in the process. As if he's, he means for us to worship our own golden impressiveness. Listen, guys, the Lord loves you way too much for that. He knows that it's all a demonic trick that ends in your destruction. It's a low view of God and a high view of self. And all of that goes before a very real fall. Look at verse seven. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. So Moses is up there on the mountain during all of this. He's up on the mountain with God. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. It was pretty quick, right? Like we're talking like weeks. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That means unrepentant. That means they won't turn, right? Verse 10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. In other words, he's like, Moses, we're not dealing with them anymore. Let's just, I'll just start over with you. So God here, I want you to see this. This is how God often interacts with us. God is bringing Moses into his own pain. That may be hard to swallow for some of you. I want you to watch this. If you only view God as the unemotional, ethereal energy in the sky then this is going to be really difficult. But that's not how he presents himself to us. And this is not the kind of relationship that he establishes with Moses. He's not a disassociated computer. He's not detached or heartless. He is not the God of stoicism. He's the true God who is highly loving. And he is a God where his grief is real because his love is real. His heart breaks. We see this, Old and New Testament. God is grieved by what Israel has done, and he invites Moses into his pain here. That's what he's doing. It's a part of their authentic relationship. He wants Moses to see that he's been heartbroken by what's taken place, and he's angry. Look, guys, God desires for you to feel his pain when it comes to sin. You can grieve his Holy Spirit. Even in grace, we can still grieve his spirit. He wants you to know why his wrath burns so hot against sin and and the unrepentant heart. Like it's not mean, it's good because he is good and his goodness is glorious. Now look at verse 11. But Moses implores the Lord, his God, and said... Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Like, I love this. <laughs> like, Moses is reflecting God's character back to him. Like, we're seeing in Moses the very character of God that's been imparted to him throughout this journey. Like, like we're seeing a transformation in Moses himself that's been both solidified and on display through this, like, par- prayerful interaction with the Lord. Like, does God need Moses to do this? No. But God has chosen to orchestrate things in such a way that it's through this prayerful exchange that Moses is transformed and God's people are spared. We're seeing a sanctification even of Moses. Where Moses, like, guys, not long ago, Moses would have been like, yeah, get him. But it's through his interactions with the very character and nature of God that Moses reflects God's character back to him even as God invites him into his own pain. This is prayer. This is intercession. Ask me how I know. Like, does prayer matter? Yes. And and listen to what Moses prays. Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out 
to kill them in the mountains and to consume them with the face, from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. So Moses is here appealing to God's glory, even in the lost nations, that they would know his glory and see that his, he is good and faithful. Again, something that's close to God's heart, Moses is praying back to the Lord. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all of this land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Now, now he's appealing to God's promises. And so these are all things that Moses has had a hard time grasping. Again, not too long ago. And here he's praying them back to God. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So not because the people were faithful, but because God is faithful to his people. So Moses heads back down the mountain now, and now he's carrying these stone tablets in hand that had the, the, the commandments and all that stuff on it that he's just gotten from God. And then look at verse 19, Exodus 32, 19. And it says, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. which is pretty appropriate when you think about it. Like, they'd be pooping gold for days after this. And that's not just a youth group joke. That's real. I mean, this really, that's really what all of this was in the first place, just refuse. Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul writes to the church in Philippi from prison, and he says this, he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now that word for rubbish there, is a word in Greek, skubulon, and it's the most intense word in the Greek language for poop. Because that's what their attempts at being impressive apart from the Lord really was. It was just faithless, golden poop. That's what this is. Their pride has now turned into their shame. As Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty or prideful spirit before a fall. And I want you to remember, pride and shame are just two sides of the same coin. That's why when you fight for your own impressiveness or self-accolade or self-security even, or you look to your own self-sufficiency to be your security or strength, you're headed for a big, poopy mess. Praise God that we have a good king who's willing to change our diapers. Amen? But in the meantime, in the waiting, it's God's faithfulness that brings us through. It's our trust in him that draws us out of those counterfeit identities and into our true identity as his beloved children. And he helps us mature and grow up in that. King David, again, he put it like this in Psalm 27, verse 13. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So he's in the darkness 
And he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And he says, verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And yet even in the failure, even in the shame of our own faithlessness, God is faithful. He still meets us there. Even in the counterfeit, he meets us to draw us out and to draw us in, to sanctify us, to mature us, and to set our feet upon the rock-solid ground of his goodness and glory and to say, that shame, that guilt, it's gone. Do you trust me? Do you trust that I am faithful and true? Do you trust that my sacrifice was enough to cover all of that and you don't need to wallow in that shame anymore? This is who he's called you to be. This is how we approach the throne of glory and confidence, which leads to the second scenario of God's faithfulness in the failure. Israel failed and God holds the instigators responsible and he even puts them to death, both by the sword and by plague. And again, Moses uh, goes to intercede on behalf of those who worshiped the golden calf. Moses even offers up his own life in in, uh, their place to the Lord. He's like, blot my name out of the book. If you're going to blot them out, blot me out. It's a picture, a clear picture of God's heart that we're going to see later in Jesus Christ. But the Lord shows mercy, and he reinstates his promise over Israel, but it comes with one big stipulation. He tells Moses to take the people into the land that he promised them, and he even says, I'm going to send an angel out in front of you. But, God says, I will not go up among you. Think about this. Exodus 33, verse 3, says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the land that he promised to bring them into. But he says, But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked or unrepentant people. This is heavy. Anybody feel the heaviness? Like, that's rough. Like, they've shown that they just want the gifts, not the giver. And so he's giving them what they want without himself. But when the people heard the news, they mourn. They're devastated by it. It dawned on them that it was all worthless rubbish without the Lord. The gifts without the giver were ultimately just worthless golden poop. Verse 15, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, he's appealing this identity. Their identity is in the Lord being with them, God with us. This is what has always set the true people of God apart. Not in our behavior, not in our strength, not in our prosperity. It always has been about his presence with us. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Verse 18, Moses said, whew, guys, we got four more hours. Moses responds to this saying, please show me your glory. That is a weighted statement. 
Like literally, the word for glory here means full weight. Moses is asking God to show him the full weight of who he is. He wants to know his character. He wants to know everything about him. He wants to know him in an intimate way, even if it kills him. He wants to know him. There's this moment here of friendship with the creator that beckons to Moses' desire to know the Lord more and more. He wants the fullness of God. The more he knows of God, the more he wants to know God. This is all in the very shadow of Israel's deep failure. Do you see this? Right in the shadow of the failure, God invites Moses into his own heart, into his own grief. In these moments of prayer and intercession, Moses has become completely captivated by who God is. And it seems like everything's fallen apart, and yet God is faithful. Even in the midst of the failure, even in the failure, there's this intimacy here. And we're witnessing the transformation of Moses into the man whose character reflects the Lord's. A man who desires to see the full weight of who God is. Now watch this. You guys want to see the full weight of who God is? Verse 19. And he said, I will make all, say all. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now, don't miss this. When Moses asks to see God's glory, God shows him all his goodness. His goodness. When you think of glory, do you think of goodness? You should. Or do you think petrifying? Sometimes even bad. Some of you need this so bad. So often we hear about the glory of God. People think of God being distant and holy and lofty and huge, even dangerous and petrifying. And in light of his glory, we are insignificant. Like, who am I that God should think of me? It's kind of natural in view and in light of his glory. It's the same way the Israelites viewed God's presence on the mountain while Moses is up there eating and drinking and basking in the goodness of God. They're like, whoa, wrath. The sinful Israelites only see thick darkness, lightning, and consuming fire. They're petrified. They stand far off. But Moses draws near. God's glory was an invitation. His glory wasn't just scary. It was good. And so God's glory is what Moses was designed to encounter and experience and to be shrouded in and consumed by, to know the Lord, to be back in the garden, to be face-to-face with God. But again, the tension is real. Because of our failure, because of our sin, because of our faithlessness, his wrath is real. That distance between our heart's deepest longings and what is possible is very real because of sin, because of failure, and because of justice. And yet, he's faithful. What does that mean? He loves the desire to know him. He loves those who hunger and thirst for more of him, to know his glorious goodness. He loves it when we pray, Lord, please show me your glory. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? When's the last time you prayed, please, God, show me your glory? Not God, give me more stuff. Not God, heal me of this or that or make this a more comfortable experience. God, show me your glory. Nothing wrong with those prayers. Nothing wrong with praying for healing, but let's go, right? But what about, Lord, show me your glory. May that be our prayer this Christmas. 
that you would be overwhelmed by the majesty and the beauty and the goodness of God. That your children would behold the glory of God, that our church would behold his glory. And so again, Moses says, show me your glory. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, again, my identity, who I am, Yahweh. And I will be gracious, it says, back to verse 19, and I will be gracious to him whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Like you can feel this tension. You feel it? You should. Verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Yeah, I can't stand it. This is so, God, who is the rock of our salvation, guys? Jesus. He is, like, like, who are we hidden in that the full weight of God's glory may shine around you? Jesus. Who is at the right hand of God the Father? Jesus. So in the waiting, all this is a type and a shadow that's screaming, Jesus. In the waiting, God is faithful. And even in our failure, God is faithful. And these are, these are like little golden nuggets in there, little truly golden nuggets that are pointing us to who Jesus is and what he would do for us, right? And finally, final, final point, God's faithfulness when you don't understand. And the tension. This is tough. Tension is hard for a people that want to have it all, all together and have all the answers in themselves. But God is faithful even in that tension, even in the confusion, even when we don't understand. God is faithful. Look at, in, in chapter 34, God then invites Moses back up the mountain. So he's been back up and down. I mean, this man is over 80 years old and he is, this dude was fit, right? Like he is climbing Sinai up and down. He's climbed about seven times by now. And, and I want you to think about that. Think about that journey. Like how often do you think he had it all figured out along the way? Like if it was me, I'd be like, seriously, I lugged these stone tablets. I didn't feel like a CrossFit workout, right? Like I'm like, it'd be difficult up and down and up and down and the people are not listening and it's like God is gonna destroy them. And it's like, I don't even understand why he's doing all this. this is, God, what is happening in the valley, on the mountaintop and along the way, it would have been a deep challenge of faithfulness a trusting, a journey. And yet each time Moses faithfully draws near to that, with that invitation, with this expectation to meet with the Lord, and God does, in fact, meet him there every time. And this time, God tells him to make two new tablets of stone because he broke the first two in anger when he saw Israel worshiping that golden calf, right? He lost it. So Moses makes the stone tablets, and God renews his covenant with Israel. And then verse, uh, chapter 34, verse 5, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, who he is. So, so what is the name of the Lord? Who is this Lord? What is the full weight of his glory? He's answering his prayer, show me your glory. 
how is the weight of his glory communicated to Moses? Remember, this is all an answer to that request. Like, what's about to happen? Will he be wrathful? Will he be high and mighty and terrible? Ferocious and furious? Will he be a hurricane? Will he be fire? Will he be an earthquake? Will Moses even survive? Here's what Moses experiences. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Say faithfulness. But wait, I thought the God of the Old Testament was all wrathful and mean. Like those, those that think that should actually read the Old Testament, right? In fact, this is the first time God reveals his character in the Bible and it comes through as glory. Verse seven, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Say steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Because this is the full weight of God's glory and goodness on display. But, and as my pastor used to say, this is a big but. Who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's heavy. Like that, that escalated quickly, right? What's going on here? Like, let's not forget who we're talking about here. Like, his goodness is reflected also in his justice. So this is all pretty heavy. So what's going on here? This seems to be a very real, very perplexing tension between God's mercy and his justice. His mercy on one side, his justice on the other. Like, this is his goodness passing before Moses, this tension between his mercy and his justice. Like, how can God be merciful to sinful people, and also just. Like, how can he forgive on the one hand and yet by no means clear the guilty? How is this going to work? It's the gospel. God became a man, and he lived the life that we could not live, and he died the death we deserve to die. He took the just penalty. In his mercy, he came and took it himself. And he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way through the resurrection to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts the moment you place your faith and your hope in what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf. And he hides us in himself like the rock of our salvation that we might be consumed by his glory. The tension between mercy and justice collides at the cross of grace. The difference between mercy and grace is that mercy just pushes off that just penalty that's coming into the distance. Grace pays for it, took care of it. He took it on himself. He paid for it. You see, the cross is where mercy and justice, that which flows forth now is grace. God's glory and goodness was lifted high on that cross for all to see. God is giving us a snapshot of the full weight of his glory as he passes by Moses, who is hidden in Christ and beholding the very gospel itself. 
He is the rock in which we're hidden. And he is the very right hand of God in whom we are, have, have our salvation. No, this all took place long before Jesus came to earth. And yet it's all pointing to their very need for a savior king who would come on their behalf that they might see the full glory of God. This is why they are shouting and singing and we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, which means God with us and ransom captive Israel. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Yes, I know that's a different Christmas song, but it applies. And it's good and he's glorious. And there's no other religion on the planet that's able to navigate this tension, guys. There's no other philosophy. There's no other way of life. There is no, look, the Jews, the Muslims, they both say that God is merciful and just. But because they have no concept of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, they have no understanding of who, what grace is about. And they can't understand how God can be merciful and just. They just say, well, maybe he'll forgive me. I don't really know how, but, you know, eh. In Christ alone. Our hope is found. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now verse 8, and we're wrapping up here. Moses quickly bows his head to the earth, and he worships. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. Even, even though we're a stiff-necked people, God, dwell, come to us, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is a picture of who we are as his people. This is what Christmas is all about. Grace is where his glory is actually most magnified. It's the only place where the tension is resolved, but it's not just a resolution. Guys, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to receive and to surrender and to accept that his faithfulness is enough and to allow it to ignite faith and faithfulness. And in the waiting, in the failure, on the mountaintop of clarity and in the valley of confusion and everywhere else along the way, I want to close with this illustration from Psalm 23, verse 6. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you're familiar with this psalm, you know that it's talking about following the Lord like sheep following their good shepherd. And my friend Chris Gaynor, who has preached here before, he always uses this uh, illustration, and he imagines two sheepdogs, one named goodness and one named mercy, just chasing after us. The, as we wander, as the sheep leave the path, it's like these two sheepdogs chasing after us and rounding us back up, even when we stray or get lost, just chasing, running after all the days of our lives. Like, what a picture of God's faithfulness. Like, I know that that's true of my own life. My question is, have you seen it in yours? And do you believe that he's that good? And if you do, I hope it ignites your faith in his faithfulness because he really is that good. Let's pray. 